Hello and welcome to A Functional Approach with Dr. Jim Chaltis. I am still Dr. Jim Chaltis, and today I want to discuss kind of a whopper of a topic, um, one that I cannot do justice for in a mere 30 minutes or so, but I will get the conversation started. So um, this will be something that I will also, kind of like the blood sugar concepts and a few of the other basic fundamentals of of our physiology, I'll probably be bringing up the topic of gluten uh, and other types of similar, you know, immune reactions against food proteins over and over again. Because, boy, if you just really start looking into the literature, it just keeps on coming up. And gluten is a, a very unique and, and special reaction that um, that really does um, come up all over the place. I work a lot in the autoimmune. Um, world and so we find that things like gluten sensitivity reactions are just a, a, a huge part of that that pathophysiology right that the that physiology kind of gone in the wrong direction and I will be explaining a little bit more about why that is but you know I think it's it's first it's really important to understand you know for those of you who who don't know much about gluten except for maybe the fact that it's sort of like this thing you hear about and and there's always that guy at the table who's asking all the questions um, <laughs> me sorry to say but um, you know what is gluten specifically and and quite simply put it's a protein it's just a protein that's found in certain types of foods grains um, the classic gluten containing grains are wheat barley and rye uh, but you find gluten in about 80% of our food supply here in America. You know, grains, wheat specifically, is a government subsidized food, and we have it in surplus. The farmers are paid to grow these, these crops. And so we end up having a surplus of them, and it's, it's my theory that uh, it just needs to find its way into places. This is now very, very cheap food that can be added to things uh, and you'd be surprised you know it, it literally takes being a gluten sensitive person or to the extreme a celiac disease you know afflicted person um, to start reading all the labels and and once you do once you become like a master gluten you know investigator you will see it everywhere i've seen it in mustard of all things i don't know what what wheat products are doing in a mustard, but but boy, I almost made the mistake one time. So um, if you're sensitive to it, you must read. Um, now, so gluten is this protein, and it's a, it's a rather large protein. Most proteins are. Um, a protein, of course, is a is a structure that that's sort of a building block to to um, you know tissues. Let's say you know we we are made of proteins, so are plants. Uh, and other organisms, uh, but the building blocks of a protein are amino acids. So you have this long string of amino acids that kind of you know uh, fold and attach to each other in a certain three-dimensional way, and then you have this structure of a protein. And uh, and depending on the structure, that dictates the function. So it could be something as simple as, I don't know, you might have an enzyme in your body that helps you do some particular task. That's just a protein with a specific shape that does a certain thing. Now, when it comes to things like gluten, and it gets into our system, right, through our digestive tract, 
our immune systems are always looking for things that look a little suspicious. You know, we don't know what that virus is. Let's create a memory of it. Let's, you know, let's launch an attack against it. Let's do what we have to do to neutralize the, the threat. Well, gluten <clears throat> happens to be a molecule that looks pretty close to a lot of other suspect things. That's the easiest way that I could kind of uh, explain it. Now, in a perfect scenario, you eat a nice piece of pizza or something like that, right? And you, you chew it and you start digesting it with saliva and um, stomach acids and all of the uh, pancreatic enzymes that, that take place in the small intestine. And then we absorb those highly digested, highly broken down um, nutrients, in this case, you know, fragments of protein uh, into our bloodstream and there's a small enough size that they just sneak under the radar. That's ideal. That's, that's the way it should be. Uh, and the way it is most of the time for most people. Now, if for any reason, and trust me when I say there are many reasons, that protein, in this case we're, we're picking on gluten, isn't chopped up into small enough pieces. Right? So now you have these larger fragments of, of kind of smaller protein fragments that are able to squeeze through the intestinal barrier. It might be because there's what we might call a leaky gut, intestinal permeability. All that means is that on a microscopic level, the gaps between the intestinal cells kind of break down and widen out a little bit, and now larger fragments can squeeze through. So you'll find that regularly in, in a lot of people, especially if there's chronic concepts going on, if there's chronic gut issues especially. Uh, I mean, how many people do you know that suffer from bloating? You know, just that. Just ask your friends, you know, or maybe they'll just come right out and say, oh my God, I, I just bloat every time I eat bread, right? So the ball can get rolling. And so you get these, these inflammatory kind of potentially leaky gut, um, otherwise known as intestinal permeability um, conditions. And then a person might not be breaking down the proteins as well in the in the stomach and in the intestines and so those those fragments get through that could be for anything really it's kind of a cruel joke honestly what do you love the most what do you eat the most because what you eat the most becomes your poison <clears throat> excuse me it becomes your poison over time the immune cells sitting there lurking on the other side of the uh, intestinal barrier, kind of that 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 space between the inside of our intestines and our bloodstream, right? Which is at that point technically now the inside of your body. It got into your bloodstream, so there's there's a massive amount of immune cells just sort of waiting there, and they're always sampling and they're always deciding. They are the gatekeepers, right? This is a major immune interface, just like our lungs, right? We're always breathing in stuff, right? Our sinus lungs, our gut, for 50% of us out there, our vaginas, right? These are all mucous membrane areas that are interfaces with the outside world. And so therefore, the immune system is highly active in these areas and they're always sampling. So the things you eat the most, you have the highest chance of forming sensitivity reactions to that, okay? And a sensitivity reaction is a little different than an allergy. I'd like to talk about that in another podcast, perhaps. Um, but they're both different types of immune reactions. 
So the typical gluten sensitivity reaction does not mean gluten allergy where like, you know, like an allergy, like you eat a shrimp and you swell up and you can't breathe, right? That, that's, a, that's a real aggressive form of a true allergy or somebody gets hives or something within a half hour of exposure. That's an allergy. But a sensitivity could take days, a couple days to, to kick in, you know, anywhere between one to three days. And you might eat um, gluten and have developed a, a mild sensitivity and, and really your only symptom is just fatigue. You know, as your body kind of inflames and your brain inflames as a result, and your immune system is more active, a person might just feel a little bit fatigued, but that comes on slow at first. And so you kind of lose that cause and effect. And you know, the more you're exposed, which let's face it, if you eat gluten, like most people, how many times a day are you eating gluten? I mean, it's, it's not like you have that one exposure and then you can experience a result. No, it's something very, very chronic and repeated over and over again. You know, it's upwards of, you know, five to 10 times in a day, perhaps, if you're having snacks on little pita chips and pretzels and you had cereal for breakfast and you have pasta for dinner and, you know, dessert, whatever that might be. So, you, you know, you can kind of get the idea um, that it just sort of blends together. And then over time, you're just like, God, I'm just tired all the time. I don't know why. No one can figure it out. And I used to be anemic, but you no, know, not anymore. I'm just tired. Maybe I'm depressed. I don't know. You know, so it, it kind of develops like that. It becomes your normal. What's your normal? And then it's hard to, to prove a lot of times because you, you, you're eating it and you don't, you don't get that big whammo reaction. Um, so that, that's kind of a, that's kind of the bummer about the sensitivity reactions is they, they really can rule your life. And actually what I meant to say was ruin your life. They can rule it as well. Um, but they do so slowly and gradually and accumulatively, right? It's not like this, oh no, I got exposed to a shrimp and now I'm swelling up. You know, it's not like a slam you in the face kind of reaction. So when you do that, right, when you, when you submit yourself to just routine immune inflammatory reactions, low grade or not, you're predisposing yourself to a lot of other inflammatory driven issues. I will talk more in future podcasts about the notion of cross reaction, meaning the cases of mistaken identity. And that is a big area where gluten is, is guilty and implicated, right? Just a little taster, a little teaser here. Gluten has a certain structure in it. There's, there's certain amino acid sequences, right? Which look a hell of a lot like tissues in the thyroid gland, just to name one. Or maybe more obviously, tissues in the intestinal tract for celiac disease, right? So sometimes people eat gluten and they genetically have a trait that clicks on and then now the immune system can't tell the difference between gluten, protein from a grain, and transglutaminase 2, a protein found in your gut tissue. And if you start to attack transglutaminase 2 because of a grain sensitivity against gluten proteins, then you technically have celiac disease. This is now not, it's not just a, a sensitivity to the grain. Now it's a, a full-blown autoimmune disease in a lot of cases. This can ruin your life, this celiac disease. Um, you know, it can destroy your gut tissue and, and cause malabsorption. Those little microscopic villi, those little microvilli, the finger-like structures in the intestines that, that increase surface area of our gut and help us absorb nutrients, right? Those start to atrophy. 
And for a, a more of a, a mainstream kind of a, a sinker of a diagnosis for celiac disease, they actually have to take a biopsy of your intestinal lining and look at those, those little microvilli, and they must be eroded past 25% from my understanding. So you have to have lost 75% of your microvilli to be you know, uh, diagnosed officially as having celiac disease. I think that's a little silly, personally. Um, let's just say you have a positive grain sensitivity and you have a, um, a positive transglutaminase attack against your own tissues, but on biopsy, you're only eroded, you know, 40%. So now you have 60% left. Well, some people would say you don't have celiac disease and they might let you go ahead and eat the grain anyways, but that's not a functional approach, folks. Um, if you are destroying your own tissue and there are autoimmune markers and there's food sensitivity markers, simply put, you must avoid the food. You have to put out those fires. You have to starve it of its fuel, in this case, gluten. Now, that rabbit hole runs much, much deeper. Again, this is a series, much like the cardiology discussion. This is a series of talks, and we're gonna talk about cross-reactivity between foods other foods that look a hell of a lot like gluten. Well, teaser there, all the gluten-free grains plus dairy. <laughs> they all look very, very similar to gluten in, in, in protein structures. So, okay, I, that, that's, the, that's sort of like the, the basic concepts that, that I, I think are important to know around the importance of a gluten reaction. But, um, you know, a, a thing comes to mind. Uh, I was sitting at the dinner table with my... Um, with my family. This was many years ago. Um, and I was, I, I have a gluten reaction myself. I, I can share more about, but um, I have a pretty nasty gluten um, autoimmune reaction. And so I, gluten was definitely on my radar and on the conversation of the table. And so my father, who um, was born in Greece, you know, as an immigrant to the United States, of course, um, you know, bread is a, is a staple of food in the old country. And frankly, everywhere, but, but certainly back there in the old country. Um, and so he, he just said, you know, how could, how could this be bad for you? This is the foundation of life. You know, bread is the most basic food that we humans kind of have, really, you know, since we've been civilized, at least, and, and not just out there hunting, uh, you know, and, and picking up things off the ground to eat. Um, and, you know, it's a good point, really. It, it is a good point. How could it be so toxic and why are we hearing about it all of a sudden, respectively so, right? Well, the answer is, is really quite simple in some ways, but, but actually quite expansive in others. So the simple one. Um, the gluten that we have now, in America specifically, is not the same gluten as we had even 70 years ago. When, when my father was a little boy, and especially in the old country in Greece where they harvested their own grains and wheat and milled their own flour, and it was organic, right? And it was unalter, unadulterated. That is not the same gluten protein that we have today in America as our staple form of gluten. So if you can kind of, you know, do a little, you know, visual experiment, I know we don't have video here, but if you were to make a fist right? Make a fist with your left hand and call that a gluten protein. It has a certain size. It has a certain shape, right? And then take your other hand and just sort of stick your thumb on it. And now you have two things connected. You know, your, your right hand, the little thing you just stuck on is called an amide. 
and that is the way that that looks, that, that gluten with the amide on it, you don't need to know the chemical concepts, just know there's a little thing that sticks off the side. That's native, that's the way it's always been. That's what my father was talking about in, back in the day. I mean, it's just, it, that's the way it's been for millennia, literally, right? Now, in America, I don't remember the exact dates, but somewhere 50, 60, something like that years ago, they found out that if they just, in the lab, you know, in the processing of the grains, strip off that amide. So now we have what's called a deamidated, deamidated gliadin. Gliadin's another term for a smaller subunit of gluten. Same thing. If you ever heard gliadin, they're really, they're just saying a piece of the gluten molecule. So we strip that off. This is not genetically modified, right? This is something that they can do to the grains after harvest that changes it chemically. And the benefits of deamidating these, these grains is that it goes from more of like a, an alcohol type soluble form, the original one, to more of a water soluble one, which is a lot more processable, a lot more packageable. You know, think about what happened in America in like the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, where food became more convenience based, right? Um, so now we can put them in cans and in, and in powdered packages and, and just make a much better, more marketable, more shelf-lifeable product, right? How American does that sound? Better for the bottom line. Good for the shareholders, right? Good for the people? I think not. And, I, and, and the literature shows that. So a deamidated version of the, of the protein is much more reactive because remember what I said, though we have little immune cells that are always sampling, always looking, always tasting, if you will, and deciding what do we think of that? And so in the grand scheme of our kind of evolution over the thousands of years, 50 or 60 years is nothing. We haven't evolved. Our physiology has not evolved even close to that. So if nothing else, those deamidated versions are at least suspect. Now, do those do those suspects become full-blown reactions? Well, they do in some people, right? Because some people have a genetic trait that makes them more susceptible. Uh, that would be more like your celiac people, the HLA-DQ positive genotypes, right? That's that's the genetic one of the one of the genetic SNPs they're called. So, if you're positive for that, the chances of developing celiac disease is, it goes up considerably. So you start to kind of get exposed to these things. And if nothing else, maybe you don't develop a full-blown immune reaction, but it can be at least, um, you know, mildly irritating and, you know, uh, can just start opening the doors to, to leaky gut, right? And once the gut barrier is open, then, you know, hey, what, maybe you love green beans and you eat them all day long, you might just start developing sensitivities to green beans. We don't want that. Not, nothing special about a green bean. I just, you know, it could be anything. It could be eggs. People love eggs. Very highly reactive food. A wonderful food for most people. But, but the albumin, the whites tend to be quite reactive to a lot of people. So if you have, if you're irritating the lining of your guts with, let's say, this new Franken protein we call the deamidated gliadins or, you know, deamidated gluten, then what are you eating most, <laughs> right? That will become your poison over time and and that will drive your chronic issues i don't care if it's fatigue i don't care if it's autoimmune disease of other kinds or cancers or bone loss or uh, dementia right if you go ahead and inflame yourself chronically every day all those will get worse
I wish, I hope, I, <laughs> I offer. Um, things like gluten testing for everyone. They should be a part of a basic screen. It's not normal food anymore. You have to actively seek it out. Either you're buying imported stuff where they're not doing that to their food because they respect it better. They do that in Europe for the most part. Um, you know, you're, you're avoiding all those other toxic landmines, mines, the GMOs and the sprays and all that kind of business, right? So we have to start thinking that way, right? Because that's the very, very beginning of a functional approach, right? You're a healthy person. You have no problems. Let's not let you get there, right? I'm giving you this little bit of advice here to put myself out of business because seriously, like if you just nail what works for you and what doesn't work for you, your need for medical professionals goes way, way down. Okay, so this is the thing we have control over. But gluten is delicious. I get it. I understand. I, I haven't had any for 13 years. <laughs> I get it. But how delicious is it? And are, are you talking about neurological autoimmunity now? I mean, what's, what's worse than that? Right? You know, we have to prioritize throughout our lives. So I think that that's a major concept that I really want to get across. You know, there's so much to talk about, but just know that the gluten we're consuming today is not the same as it was with my father. And even me, I'm, I'm 47 now. So even the gluten that I ate growing up, I, I, I might've still had some of the older stuff, but just barely. Like my generation, um, my older brother's generation perhaps, but were probably the, the first ones that, that were just fed this new kind of you know, highly reactive inflammatory food containing what I would consider a Franken protein. It's, it's brand new in, in the grand scheme of our lives. So deamidation is, is uh, you know, concept number one. Um, and then I'll kind of briefly go over a couple more, but um, I read, you know, you're always reading these things out there. You know, you go on Yahoo News or I don't know what, and various social medias and people post stuff and there's no shortage of stuff being posted. And, and, and one that, that always seems to come around is it's not the glutens, it's the sprays. You know, as though we're trying to downplay the importance of a gluten reaction. And I, for reasons I don't understand, because the literature is not short of reasons to be concerned about gluten reactions for any given disease. But it's not the glutens, it's the sprays. Okay, really. So yes, they do spray heavily. They spray the grains heavily. Um, you know, that helps them against pest, pests that might eat them. You know, um, they spray them for other weeds and things in the fields, of course. All this monocrop culture, you know, is, is damaging in so many ways. So yes, they are absolutely spraying those grains. We can't downplay the sprays because they are toxic and they, they destroy our gut microbiome and they inflame the lining of our gut. And what do you know? They open our gut barrier and they create leaky gut. Now we have a leaky gut scenario that's chemically imposed and you're eating a grain that is at least suspect, right? And you're eating it all the time. So it's not the gluten, it's the sprays. No, it's both of those things. Absolutely both of those things. But it's worse yet. Like I mentioned before, in America, we have surpluses of these things. We have 
subsidies, government subsidies, taxpayer-funded subsidies for farmers to grow certain grain-type crops, cereal crops, and other things. So we end up with silos full of them. Something around the time frame of two to three years is typical from the time of harvest of, let's say, wheat to the time of market, right? Where you're buying it in, in a, you know, Fruit Loops at your local super, supermarket. During that time, these grains tend to sit in those silos and, and grow molds. Now, these are molds that in, in quantity levels are still passing FDA you know, scrutiny, which isn't really saying a lot, but it, you know, it, it's considered quote unquote safe, right? Safe level, tolerable levels of molds. They're out there, there's reports, you can find them. Um, but these molds tend to have little toxins, I suppose you'd say, endotoxins. Endo meaning held within their, you know, their cell walls usually inside their the structures of their their little mold bodies um, so those endotoxins get into the food so it's not the glutens it's the sprays oh is it the molds yes it's all those things it's all of those things let's not just keep it to one concept just to avoid the discomfort of jumping on like a gluten-free like trend or bandwagon it's not a trend you guys it's not a trend this is real. I see it all the time. And I know it works because when I work with chronic patients, we don't always test for gluten because maybe they don't want to spend the 300 and something dollars to look. But when we remove it from the diet effectively, 100%, no joke, 100% compliance, 30 to 90 days later, they're very different. They're very different people. Their chronic illness has calmed way down. And oftentimes their needs for medications goes down. That's between them and their doctor, but in some cases that definitely happens. Simple dietary change. What'd you do? You turned down the autoimmunity. You turned down the immune response against the food. You lowered the intestinal inflammation. You regained tolerance to your environment. Environment meaning the things we are exposed to. Foods qualify. Right? I can't tell you how many people, including myself, used to have terrible sinus infections and sinus problems, allergies to their cats, whatever it is. And they lose their primary inflammatory immune reaction in their diet. And guess what? All those things get better. How many nasal steroids are being prescribed? How many surgeries uh, for the sinus are, are being performed? Right? And no one's looking for the immune triggers. I used to get personally when I lived in Santa Cruz and I was working on a ranch with hay and grasses and you know horses and all that business. I used to get probably one full-blown sinus infection every three to four months and I was having to take antibiotics and it was just a nightmare. I found out about the gluten thing and now I get like one sinus infection like every three years and I don't even need antibiotics most of the time. So. I know for myself what, what happens, right? And I know for my patients what happens. Uh, I just want to kind of close with, with uh, you know, one more concept, which I, I find really powerful and fascinating because it also kind of speaks to what my father was saying back then about, you know, how could it be changing? How could all this stuff happen? Well, it has been validified um, uh, 
and there was a study done. I, I believe it was done in like 2009. And what they did was they took something on the order of about 1,200 um, test subjects from each category. And 1,200 is a pretty good number. You know, that's a, when you're looking at designing a study, does the study have enough power? Does it have enough subjects? Like if you just look at five people, you can't make a huge conclusion about society. But when you're up around the 1,200 range, that's a pretty good sample some, um, number there. So what they did was they took uh, blood samples, which have been on ice uh, for um, veterans from the 50s, 40s and 50s, like the World War II and Korean War era soldiers. I don't know why they still had these blood samples on ice at 2009, but they did. So they, they ran those blood samples against a modern day screen for celiac disease. And remember, full-blown celiac disease, you're positive to a reaction against the gluten, and you're positive against your own intestinal tissue called transglutaminase 2. So that's what they did. They looked at both of those markers, and they found that one person out of 700 qualified for full-blown celiac, you know, minus the biopsy, just with the blood markers, right? One out of 700 people. Uh, back in the 40s and 50s. They, they took a similar group of people from 2009, right? Matched for age and gender and all that, all that business, and ran the same exact markers, and they found that one in 100, one person out of 100 was positive. So it went up sevenfold, right, in like 50 years. Why? Well, most likely because of the deamidation process, the storage of the grains, the sprays of the grains, right? All that. That's not even mentioning a lot of the societal stresses, you know, the, the family stresses, the, you, you name it, right? It's, it all matters. It all matters. So that's a fantastic test because, no, it's not a fad. We are actively you know, seven times higher with full-blown celiac disease than we were 50 or 60 years ago. So I suppose the thing to leave off with is celiac disease is, is a very significant thing. One in a hundred people apparently are flagging for it based on two markers. If you ever get tested for it in my clinic, we're going to look at 24 markers, something like that. There's a lot of different ways that a person can react besides just those two. So forgetting full-blown celiac for a second, what if it's just a really nasty gluten sensitivity, non-celiac? One out of how many, right? You start getting a much more significant ratio when you start looking, when you start casting a larger net. And that's what I hope to do for you. That's, that's what we want to do. We want to screen effectively. We want to cast a larger net, catch more fish, right? Because all you need is one. You know, if you just have one reaction, that's the same. That's the same. If you hold your fist out and that's your gluten molecule, point to your first knuckle. That's one way to react. And then point to the knuckle next door to it. That's another way to react. Two separate tests. And you can do that. There's hundreds of ways that happens on the, on the gluten protein. The best of the panels out there only look for a dozen or so, uh, you know, different ways. Uh, so let's at least look for those, right? But one in a hundred? No, no, no. It's, it's, it's way worse than that. So gluten, very, very big concept, massive concept. And um, 
I look forward to continuing this concept when we start talking about individual diseases, perhaps individual pathologies, because it's going to come up, absolutely will come up. I hope that was interesting. I hope you found that helpful. Um, you'll never look at your cereal the same again. Is it the gluten? Is it the sprays? Is it the endotoxic molds? I don't know. I don't know. It's all those things. Thank you for your time and attention. This is a functional approach with Dr. Jim Chaltis. Bye-bye.